Now it is my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Sandy Banks. Sandy Banks is a veteran journalist and a senior fellow at the USC Annenberg Center on Communication, Leadership, and Policy. She is best known as a former columnist for the Los Angeles Times, where she was also a part of the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting team that covered the 1992 Los Angeles riots. Please give a very warm welcome to Sandy Banks and our panelists. Oh, it's me now. Hi. <laughs> welcome today, tonight. Um, we have an interesting discussion and a very eclectic group of panelists here, so I think you're going to enjoy the viewpoints. We have an art critic, a political scientist, and a philosopher, so I think we've got it covered from every angle. Um, A.O. Scott, I'm sure you know, is the film critic at the New York Times, and he's also a professor at Wellesleyan University. He is also the author of Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, Pleasure, Beauty, and Truth. Jennifer Cavanaugh is a political scientist with the RAND Corporation. She is co-author of Truth Decay, which explores the diminishing reliance on facts and data in US political and civil discourse. And Lee McIntyre is our philosopher at Boston University. He's the former director of the Harvard Institute for Quantitative Social Science. And he's the author of Post-Truth, which explores everything from science denial to the rise of fake news. And part of what we're here to talk to, to about tonight is whether this is new, whether there is anything ever uh, that's objective truth. And um, Jennifer and the re research that she's done at RAND has looked a lot at the, the history kind of a fake news and the other eras of our time that um, were bedeviled by this. So Jennifer, tell us a little about the rise of fake news in the past and what it looked like then and what it what led to it. So we have seen instances of fake news um, and similar phenomena to what we're calling truth decay at RAND in previous eras. We focused on the period after the Civil War, so there may be examples that I'm not going to talk about from before that period. But we identified three periods that are worth talking about today. The 1880s to 1890s, so the Gilded Age, the 1920s, 1930s, and the late 1960s to 1970s, so the Vietnam era. Now in each of these periods, we see a number of phenomena that are similar to what we're experiencing today. First, an increase in the amount of opinion and a blurring of the line between what is considered fact and what is, an, what is opinion. And we see that in the way information is disseminated and communicated. So to give you an example, in the 1880s to 1890s, you have the rise of yellow journalism, which was sensationalized, exaggerated stories sold in newspapers to sell more newspapers. So that should sound very similar to what we are experiencing today in the way in which exaggerated and sensationalized news is used to attract viewers, whether online or in print um, outlets. In the 20s and 30s, you have the rise of radio. And again, this is a new way of communicating information. And there was a lot of opinion. Powerful uh, hosts who had shows were, that they used to spread their opinions, not facts. Again, this should sound similar to something called cable news, which everyone's probably familiar with. 
in the 60s and 70s, this is when TV was really became popular and you have the first war covered on television, which was great in terms of getting access to information, but also provided many more ways to manipulate and change information as it went out to the public. So in each of these periods, we see technology changing the way that we consume and share information. And that leads to this blurring of the line, a sense in which what is fact and what is not becomes more ambiguous for a time. The other thing that we see that's similar across all of these periods and that we have today is declining trust in the institutions that we used to look to for factual information. So the government, the media, banks, you know, in the 20s and 30s, trust in the government and trust in banks was really low for obvious reasons. In the 60s and 70s, you had declining trust in basically all institutions, the military, the media, the government. And again, you see these same trends today. So not only was there a sense in which people weren't sure what was a fact and what was not, but they weren't sure where to look to find that factual information. But there is something that's different that we identified in our research between today and previous eras. And that's this divergence between data and people's opinions. What we didn't find in previous eras, and we do find now, is a willingness of people to push aside data and objective factual information and rather cling to their pre-existing beliefs or anecdotes. And that is something that's very different. And you see that in vaccine skepticism, skepticism about the safety of GMOs, about crime data, where there's a real divergence between the data we have and people's attitudes about that data. And that's different. And you know, one of the things we can explore in this panel is why we see that difference. Yeah. You know, how is social media and internet different than what the technology changes we had in previous eras and what does that mean? And how does our general political environment and the polarization that we have um, and the way in which we uh, communicate with people who are different than us, how does that exacerbate some of these trends that we're seeing? That's kind of post-truth, I guess. It, it is. Um, so. I, I agree that there are some uh, historic, there's some historic precedent. There's been lying, fake news uh, for as long as probably there, there's been media. But I also think that in my book, Post-Truth, I talk about some of the uh, conceptual roots of post-truth, and I identify uh, cognitive bias, which has been with us forever. Um, I think that science denial was a sort of a roadmap for understanding post-truth, and that's really started to, uh, it's been around for a long time, but it really started to get exacerbated in the 1950s. But you're right that the, the, the decline of traditional media, the rise of social media, and then I also think postmodernism came together to make this a sort of a unique time, because I, I think that there's more of a break mm -hmm. in what we're doing now than, than what happened mm -hmm. before, because I think that uh, well, I, I can say a little bit more about that if people want, but I, 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 don't, I don't see quite so much continuity between what's happened in the past and what happens now. I think that now is a more distinctive break mm -hmm. with reality well, than we had before. Well, the scale and scope of the change and the yeah. amount of information and how we consume it is not on par with any of the other changes that I mentioned. Yeah. It, we, we really have to go back to like the invention of the printing press to yeah. get something that is as revolutionary as the internet and social media. Yeah, I, I think it's not just the scale, though. I think there's an, an ideology behind mm -hmm. it. There's a, there's a political motive, which I, I can say more about. But. Right, well, let, let's stop, though. You, you talked about postmodernism. 
and explain, I think a lot of people think of social media as the driver and the, right. the force. But what role, how would you describe postmodernism and what role does that play kind right. of culturally in us getting to this okay. point? So most of my hate mail is from postmodernists. <laughs> um, so I gotta be very careful about what I say here. Uh, one, some people claim that postmodernism is so popular because nobody can really define it. And I tried to define it in my book and I got a, a lot of heat for this. I think that there are really two theses behind postmodernism. One is the idea that there's no such thing as objective truth. And the other is the idea that um, given that any claim to truth is nothing more than an assertion of will. It's a, it's a kind of a political dominance, a political bullying. And what happened is that uh, this idea came in in literary criticism, uh, mostly on the left, and morphed into something that was used to criticize objective knowledge uh, in the sciences, and led to something that's referred to as the, uh, the science wars, which went back and forth. The scientists were outraged by this. How could anybody be criticizing the idea that they were looking for objective truth or that what they were doing was political, that somehow it could be traced back to that. So they, they were sticking up for the, the idea of objective truth. And I make the claim in, in my book, um, which some of the people who send me the hate mail I don't think have, have read, they just saw postmodernism got angry. But I make the claim that you really can trace it from uh, what happened in literary criticism uh, in, the, uh, in the 1980s and, and such to the present day. And what happened is that the, the tools were developed by the left to criticize truth and objectivity. And then that was taken over by the right. And I'm not claiming that Kellyanne Conway is reading Derrida, <laughs> but, but I am claiming that once that idea got out there and it was useful, and especially after 30 years of science denial, starting with the American Tobacco Institute and moving through evolution and climate change, people started to realize that if you could question facts about science, you could question facts about anything. And so I, I see post-truth as a metastasis from science denial. So we maybe in this room don't think of science denial as being successful, uh, success because it's so absurd. Science denial is wildly successful. I mean, wildly successful. Uh, I, uh, if, if you're interested in the history about tobacco, you can read Naomi Oreska's book, Merchants of Doubt, and just realize how, how stupendous it was what the tobacco industry did to fight the science. And they do the same thing with evolution, the same thing with, uh, with climate change. And I think you can draw a direct line from those sorts of tactics to questioning, did it or did it not rain on Trump's inauguration? How many people were there? <laughs> Uh, it's it's the, the same phenomena. And I think that some of that, I think that postmodernism is one route, not the only route, but it's one that I think is there. When you talk about no objective truth, it makes me think of all of the different voices that we now have access to. And, and not just the, on the left and the right and the political, but different experiences from, from different people. I mean, my truth may not be your truth. And, and certainly, uh, Tony, your, your truth when you are um, reviewing art reflects you and who you are. Is that, uh, is that fake? Is it not? Um, I mean, how do we evaluate that? Well, I, I mean, it, it's, it's because I think that, you know, I, I deal in, um, 
in art and aesthetics, and which is to say, in a way, in the realm of subjective rather than objective truth, um, because the in in just in in criticism and in matters of taste and in matters of um, <coughs> cultural participation, it, it's the 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 data that you have is very often um, an experience or a feeling. Um, mm -hmm. And what you're talking about, the argument that you're having, or the discourse that you're participating in, has to do with um, the, the 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 comparison or contention of those experiences and 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 feelings. So it's a little bit of a of a of, of I think a different um, set of of terms and of of arguments. But I do think that there are are some important um, similarities, historical and and conceptual that have to do with um, trust, as, as Jennifer was saying, um, and also with skepticism, which, yeah. is, which is a little bit what, what Lee is talking about. That is, um, I tend to think for, for political and ethical and temperamental reasons that, um, that the mistrust of authority is not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> um, that doubt and skepticism can be very powerful um, and positive instruments um, to 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 get at the truth and to and to uncover um, obfuscations or lies or misrepresentations. At the same time, there is there is a way that um, the, the the sort of the the automatic um, or or routine doubting of anything that 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 anybody with any claim to authority ever says um, <laughs> can be very corrosive um, and very and very destructive of exactly the possibility of a kind of um, space where the conversations about what's true is taking place. So that, I guess, for me, what I worry about most in this sort of post-truth moment, um, or one of the things that I worry about, is the, the decay of a kind of, some kind of sphere, some kind of public sphere, or, or common ground of accepted principles, or we talk about norms now, or just um, of experiences that, that through which the, the, the discussion of truth can, can, can take place. That is, if, if everybody mm -hmm. is, is dug in um, to their mm -hmm. own cognitive bias, to the, to the certainty mm -hmm. of their own experiences, then mm -hmm. the possibility of, of, of communication, of participation, of some kind of you know, democratic public sphere, um, which is mm -hmm. what, what I think about and I, and I care about, tends to, um, seems to me to be in danger. I think you're right, and that's profound. And can you, that Lee, talk about the, the role of cognitive bias? We hear it a lot, um, cognitive bias and confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. How does that play into setting up this kind of you know, realm where we, we can't yeah. receive what other people are saying? Yeah. Uh, it, it, cognitive bias, it, it's interesting that we even have it. Because you'd think, I mean, cognitive bias is wired into us. Uh, um, Daniel Kahneman's wonderful book, Thinking Fast and Slow, if you, you want to read about it. But I mean, so cognitive bias is wired into the human brain, and you might ask, why? Isn't truth adaptive? I mean, you, it's not in my survival interest to doubt whether there's a tiger coming at me, right? It is reality, there it is. So th there's got to be some, some sort of uh, adaptive feature for cognitive bias, and scholars are thinking about this, why it would exist. But what's indisputable is that it's there. Confirmation bias is uh, one of the worst ones. You, you probably, I mean, people actually read about confirmation yeah. bias in the news these days. The idea that you go out looking for 
information that already reinforces your point of view. Well, that, but I mean, that's a very human thing because our ego's involved and we want to believe that something is true. And, and most cognitive biases, if you think about it, the thing that makes them probably valuable to us is that they feed our ego. Um, my, my very favorite cognitive bias is called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which some people call the too stupid to know they're stupid effect, <laughs> which says that the less informed someone is about a topic, the more skilled they think they are. Because the set of ideas that you need to evaluate your own skill is the same set of ideas that you'd have to have the skill. And they did a study on this with people who were um, very bright undergraduates who were taking the, the LSAT. And anybody who's taken the LSAT knows that it's not a, a trivial exam, it's a very tough timed exam. And what they found is that the people who scored the lowest uh, had the most inflated view of how well they had done. Now, does that sound like anybody that you know? <laughs> um, I mean, the, the people in the 12th percentile felt that they were in the 60th or 70th percentile. So, I mean, the, 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 the people, it, it, it's unbelievable. And, and there are others, there's a backfire effect. There, there are hundreds and hundreds of cognitive biases. And I think that what happened is the cognitive biases are waiting through history. They're, they're there, they're wired in. But then, as you said, something like social media comes in, and all of a sudden, we're not alone anymore. All of a sudden, in our cognitive biases, if I'm an anti-vaxxer, I can go find a website that completely reinforces my point of view, and all of a sudden, I've got a community right. of people who agree with me. The right. same thing for almost anything that I, uh, that I believe. I can find a community that agrees with me, and psycholo psychologists have studied peer effects on belief, which is just gasoline on the fire. Mm -hmm. So this is one reason why I think that today is, is different. And here's where I, I think we agree that social media has really been the accelerant for cognitive bias and other, the, these other roots that were already there for things to, uh, to get started and, and has made this a very uh, distinctive and interesting time that we live in. I think it's also really important to point out the, the valuable aspects of the social element of social media. So, you know, it, social media allows anybody to have access to any information. So that's kind of a democratized access to information, which is something that we should value in a democracy. And it also allows minority voices to rise to the top. It allows me, if I have some specialized medical condition or I've had some very specific experience, to find people who have shared that experience with me to form a community that can be valuable. So I think the tricky thing here is that there is no clear-cut answer of how to address this, and we'll talk more about this at the end, I'm sure. But you know, one, the, the negative aspects of social media also come with positives, and so that makes it really difficult to figure out what the right balance is. One thing you mentioned in your research, I think, too, was education and, and not um, being equipped to kind of navigate this, and this is also mm -hmm. new to us. Mm -hmm. How does that factor in, and, and is that something that we could do better at? Mm -hmm. What would be the ways so that, just like the example you gave, if mm -hmm. you have this illness and you look and there are all these people saying things, how do you know yeah. what's outlandish and what's... Well, so the challenge that the schools face, and by schools I mean both you know, uh, K through 12 schools and universities, is that technology changes really fast and institutions change really slowly. And that's especially true of schools where you have tons of different stakeholders who all have to weigh in on any change. And so as so the internet has become so much more complicated and information available to us has become 
uh, so much more complex and there's so much more of it. The challenge of wading through this information and figuring out what is true and what is not and what is opinion and what is fact is really difficult and time consuming. And that is not something that everybody is equipped either with the time or the skills to do. You know, another set of cognitive biases has to do with how we navigate systems when we feel overwhelmed with information. So we use heuristics and shortcuts to make decisions and to um, figure out what we believe about something. We rely on friends and family. Um, and these can be great ways to make decisions and to form beliefs, but they can also lead us astray um, if, if your heuristic is leading you in the wrong direction. And so these skills, like being able to identify different types of information, to access information, to synthesize opinions. If you get 10 different opinions, how do you know which one's true? Mm -hmm. How do you synthesize and weigh them? How do you identify and understand someone's bias? These are all skills that people can learn, but it's not something that people just get through osmosis. They have to be taught it. They have yeah. to practice it. And so this is something that schools are increasingly aware of, and they are trying to incorporate into their curricula. But it's difficult, because it's much more complicated than just adding a new class. You know, there are media literacy curricula, and that's one way to approach it. But the most effective way to approach this is really to change your worldview, to change the way you view information, and the way you consume it, and the way you produce it. And that's something that changes over time and requires a really s systemic change to the way we educate, to the way we teach students. And for adults who are out of school, it creates an even bigger challenge because we don't have that kind of forum, a classroom to go every day to learn these skills. So how do you also, at the same time as you're changing, at changing it within the schools, change it at kind of a societal level? What levers do we have to reach the rest of the population? Mm -hmm. So I think it's a really tough challenge. Education is definitely um, a really promising tool and it's something that can play a role in the solution to this challenge. The, the tricky part is figuring out what that looks like and how we implement it in a way that's effective. And right now, I think researchers um, in the education field are trying to figure out what's the data we need to understand that question and then design a curricula that effectively move us forward. It seems in some ways that, that art can play a role even in that education where you're getting people to recognize how they see things and why they see things differently and maybe understand the role that, I mean, we're a part of this. We bring our mm -hmm. own um, you know, intention and our own perspective to everything and then seek to validate it or, or reject it if it doesn't conform to us. Um, do you see that? Well, I think so. I mean, because I think that, that art sort of you know, broadly understood, the, the, the work of imagination and story and, um, and, and images is, is, can be something of a, of a, of a, a, a countercurrent um, to, to, to what both Leah and Jennifer are, are describing. I mean, I, I, thinking about social media um, and about the, 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 the documented effects that in particular Facebook has had on, um, uh, you know, creating, um, states of, of, um, of inflammation and mistrust and, and, and heightening the polarization that was certainly already there. It's not, it's not that social media invented um, political polarization or, or, okay. or, or prejudice or, or, or bias or hatred, but, they, but Facebook um, in this country and also in, you know, in Myanmar and in Sri Lanka and other places um, gave all of those 
forces, all of those aspects of, 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 uh, of the human temperament, new tools um, and very, very powerful ones. And, and Facebook, this, is, this has been shown, this is you know, the, the, the book um, Zucked by, by, by Roger McNamee, sort of shows that, that um, one of the things that social media is very good at doing is making people feel bad, making people <laughs> angry, um, giving people, you know, other groups of people to feel angry at. Um, and without being too utopian or idealistic about art, I do think that art has the potential and the power to do other things. To, that is to, to, to create um, empathy, um, to, 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 to be in a way, um, you know, like art cannot overcome cognitive bias that's, that's built into our brains you know, since, um, since we first evolved. But it, it can offer um, a kind of a, a, a counterpart or a corrective, um, a way into to, to some other um, reality or set of experiences um, that, 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 that you can understand that can enrich and, and, and qualify um, your own. So I, I, I do think that it, that, that it has um, a role to play. And, and um, what I worry about, though, is that, that art itself is, is increasingly becoming subject to and, and, and a kind of a weapon in, in the very polarization um, and, and inflammation that it has the, the, the power to combat. That's just what I was going to ask. I, I know people who avoid seeing certain movies now because they don't like the message of the movie or it goes against their own uh, idea of what truth is. Yeah, and there's an assumption that everything, and, and, and I think this, this um, goes back to what, what Lee was saying, there's an assumption that everything is 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 political is politicized yeah. that every that everything is operating according to a bias or an agenda um, or the exercise of some kind of power. So the space in which we can just kind of go, pick up a book, go see a movie, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. look at a painting, and you know, it, it's it's not to say that these things don't have political agendas or meanings, but they also have something else. They also offer another register of experience um, that, that we need to hold on to um, and, and protect. And we're on alert kind of against, you know, <laughs> hearing any of that, so we may not receive it as well. Well, political, political ideology has become a really important foundation of American identity. Yeah. So, you know, people used to cling to many different things, you know, race or gender, or all these things, and these uh, religion, religious groups, these all of these different identities have kind of been collapsed into one. And how and did that happen? And, and when, when is that? I mean, well, I mean what part do you trace of, it to? So part of it has to do with like the idea of party sorting. And I don't want to get like too technical, but basically the idea is that both parties used to be like much more diverse. So you had people who were kind of, they would have, you know, liberal social views and conservative economic views. And so the parties were more mixed. They were heterogeneous. They had people with lots of different beliefs. So the two parties differed um, like, a little bit on a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Now we have two parties that are really far apart on a couple of fundamental issues. And the parties themselves are really homogenous in the sense that everybody has sorted themselves into their camp. And in my camp, I share all the same um, you know, beliefs, attributes, preferences, and demographic characteristics as other people in my group. And so we have these two camps instead of kind of like a more um, two overlapping groups that are more mixed. And so in that sense, you, 
what your political ideology has become like a, a shorthand or a code for all these other identities that you used to have. And now those cleavages are kind of very reinforcing. And so the divide is very final. Then it doesn't mean that we don't share common beliefs and common preferences on a number of different issues. If you look at public opinion polling, there are a number of areas where Americans are actually not that divided. Mm. But the issues where we are divided are really important to, to uh, like really important social issues and really important issues that are very divisive, and those divides are very final. So some of that is driven, though. It's not, it's not just a, an artifact of social media. Um, some, of, some of that's engineered. Uh, if, for instance, if you look at science denial, uh, great profit is made by certain types of science denial, and then uh, you know, corporate interests, other interests, but then it becomes ideological. If you think back to climate change, it wasn't that many years ago that Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich were sitting on the couch saying, you know, we're going to whip climate change. But then it became partisan, and, and, and that was stoked. That was manufactured by corporate interests and money, which are, are, are piggybacking on some of the, the political division, because I keep coming back to the idea that it... It's not just organic, it serves someone's yeah. interest. Yeah, but then, right. but then it does take on a life of its own, mm -hmm. and, it, and it can get exacerbated by social media and, and worse and worse. But, but I mean, some, some of this is driven. In, in Post-Truth, I talk a little bit about that, that some of it's driven, unfortunately, by ratings, by the media. Mm -hmm. um, all the media outlets, the cable outlets, profited greatly from the 2016 election. Um, so they are, they were in some ways overjoyed to see the, uh, even while they're decrying and doing stories on the political schism, right. they, they were profiting from it. And, and that, that drives us apart. And um, I, I come back to the idea, Tony, you were talking about with, with art, where I, mean, I, I, get this, I teach ethics, and so I get this question from my students about, you know, is it right and wrong answers to ethical questions and the analogy to aesthetics? That you, you can have different perspectives, you can have different values, different, you, you, Sandy, you said different truths. But, uh, I forget who said it, Re reality is the thing that even when we don't believe in it, it doesn't go away. So, you know, there's, there are certain things that you can have a different interpretation, different perspective on it, yeah. and yet the facts are the facts. And, and if people who don't want you to look at those facts uh, uh, can, can profit from that and then create their ideological warring camps and, and do real damage. So I think it's important to draw a distinction between facts and truth. We may all say, like, you know, I have my own truth based on my experience and my priorities and my perspective, but we should be able to agree on the facts or the reality. Kind of the, that we is should. what should be objective. Now, we can't. Obviously, we've seen that we have, like, differing facts, and, but, but that Alternative is... Alternative facts. Yes. You know, if we want to get to this idea that, you know, Tony was talking about before with this, like... Um, you know, public sphere where we're able to have discourse. Like the foundation of that should be like a common starting point or a common set of facts. Like what is the common reality that we can all agree on? Um, when that starts to break down, you do have kind of a decay of this like civil discourse and inability to have this. And in the political sphere, it's even more problematic because if our policymakers don't start with a common set of facts, it's difficult for them to then debate like policy options and priorities because instead they're arguing about the facts. You know, we had a 35-day shutdown, which was basically an argument about, like, fundamental facts about immigration. And we have data that could have informed that conversation. There, there's, a, there's a terrific example of this, too, from the 2016 election that, um, that doesn't involve Trump. 
there was a, Newt Gingrich had an on-air uh, exchange with Allison Camerata about whether the uh, murder rate, the national murder rate, was rising or falling. And it, it's falling. It's, it's, I mean, the FBI tracks it. This is the Uniform Crime Report. Newt Gingrich was making the argument that um, it, it really, but he felt, and a lot of people felt that it was going up. And, and well, it's true, it's, people do it, feel it's that either, the, they, they an do, increasing number every year believe crime is going up, but it's but not. It's a, but facts are facts, and we can't have good policy if we don't know mm -hmm. what, what the facts are. But, but personal experience it now seems to trump facts a lot. <laughs> And, um, and even in your example about, mm -hmm. you know, you can go to social media, you have a medical problem, you can mm -hmm. find this, but you can also find, I mean, that's kind of how the anti-vaxxers right. go. You know, everybody yes. knows somebody whose child had a reaction, and so you have your facts, but I have my child, and I'm going to go on my mm -hmm. feeling. Well, it's another and, cognitive bias. It's our yeah. difficulty with dealing with, like, generalities and right. anecdotes that have emotional right. atta experience attached yeah. is much more powerful than, like, a set of data. And so this gets into the challenge that we face you know, at, in, at RAND a lot, is how do we communicate technical research findings mm -hmm. in a way that's convincing and as emotionally powerful as someone's personal lived experience. And that's really hard. Yes. And that's yeah. something that I think all scientists and researchers are grappling with, is how yeah. do we do a better job communicating? I think journalists too. I mean, I yeah. think actually journalism faces very much the same, the same problem. I mean, it's, it's, it's been demonstrated over the last three years again and again and again that just doing the fact check um, yeah. Producing the, the the empirical evidence, the the, the data um, that may contradict um, claims, um, you know, going out in the media or coming from from uh, from the government, um, from from the White House, isn't isn't somehow enough. You know, we we, yeah. we we do it and we do it again, and 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 you know, newspapers publish the the number of untruths that the president has has um, uttered since taking office, which is numbers in the thousands. And I think there's an idea or a, a belief or a hope or a faith that this will have an effect, that, that, that people will say, oh, wait, that's not true. That doesn't seem to be happening. People, people don't change their minds based on facts and evidence, which is a, a stubborn, terrible thing. But I think to pick up on something Jennifer said, one part of it, and this is something I would talk about in my, my new book, is that called The Scientific Attitude, which is that Scientists are taught to reason about evidence based on likelihood and probability. And the lay public, I think, believes that scientists are there to prove things with certainty. And when they can't do that, yeah. then it's very easy for people to call themselves skeptics and say, well, that's true for you, it's not true for me, or I have my anecdotal data, how do you explain that? And they're, they're, just, they're just not trained. They're just not trained to think about reasoning, how to reason about evidence. Part of it, unfortunately, uh, is that I think that scientists um, give aid and comfort to this sometimes, because when they get backed into a corner from a science denier, they'll say, no, no, it's been proven. But mm -hmm. it, it, that, that's, that's, not how, that's not how science works. And so I'm, I'm making the argument now, trying to think not just are we in the post-truth era, but how do we get out of it? Yeah. Uh, one thing that I talk about in the new book is how to, how to have a new conception of thinking about facts and evidence, because I think that the scientific attitude is the direct opposite of post-truth. It's you know, approaching factual questions as you do at RAND, as a scientist would. I think that's the way out of this. But people don't respect that because they don't understand it. They also don't understand well, how science evolves. 
you know, true. science is supposed to, as we get better data and as we get better methods, we learn more and we learn that we were wrong before and now we have a better understanding yeah. and that's how science should work. But, but, but it can be a, confusing, right? That's a strength yeah. of science. It can be confusing and because, you know, today eggs are safe, tomorrow they kill you, you know, what, yeah. what am I supposed to believe about eggs? <laughs> it's you know? like some of our solutions work, work yeah. against us in right. this and, and that's one of them that, yeah, well, you changed your mind, science, about this, so how can I trust so you? So how can I believe anything? Yeah, yeah. and that's a and rational even, response. Even the, the, you know, what you were talking about, about newspapers putting out all the, this is how many lies, you know, we're told. To a lot of people, that just says, oh, that's, you, you have such an agenda, lay off, you have such an agenda, <laughs> right. so now I don't trust you, and I don't, you know, I don't believe that, or you're going, it's, you know, that becomes fake too, yeah. so. Well, and that's the kind of the, the, the double-edged sort of skepticism that I was yeah. talking about earlier in a way, because it's right, I mean, science, you know, the, the method of science is falsification, right, is trying, is trying to, mm -hmm. to cast trying doubt to and trying to disprove. Mm -hmm. um, and the, 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 the method of journalism is often um, skeptical too, and, and also self-corrective. We write the, the version of the story today that, that is true. As new facts emerge, it changes. And so that can look like a very kind of unstable, um, indeterminate sort of um, random relationship to, to, to the truth and the facts. There are also you know, examples of um, of scientific fraud and of, of journalistic yeah. malpractice yes. that get, I think, magnified and amplified. So somebody, yeah. you know, there there are people working at newspapers and and, and television um, and researchers and researchers who 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 fake the data or who make up the mm -hmm. story, um, like the autism, the, um, right. the study linking um, yeah. the measles vaccine with autism. That data was made up, you know. But people still, you ask people why why don't you think vaccines are safe? They'll still point to that article, mm -hmm. even though it's been, you know. Uh, retracted, discredited, he lost his medical license. I mean, and then it works the other way. The young man in Chicago who made up the uh, attack or is accused of making up now that's used to say, see, none of these things really happen. Yep. So, it, or yeah. what's going to happen in college admissions, you know, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> after this? Anyone, yeah. anyone who was on the water polo team, right? <laughs> like, Let's see you. I don't Let's think so. <laughs> Well, what do we do? I mean, we have to get around to the solution part of this. You know, and the layer we haven't talked about is the kind of nefarious um, entities that, like you talked about using fake news for power and dominance, but to confuse us, you know, the foreign forces, the, the, you know, the forces that plant stories that then we take as truth. Um, I mean, are we just in for a long ride of this, or is this, is this something that we can combat? Or, uh... there, there are ways to do it. I mean, fake news is news that's intentionally false. It's not just happens right. to be false. It's intentionally right. false. I don't even it, really it, like the term fake news. I usually well, like, yeah. refer to it as disinformation, which is intentionally I, true. I, I'm, I'm going to defend it because I think, <laughs> I, I think the idea is that fake, so fake news is news that's intentionally false, but then even somebody who claims that a false thing is fake, that can also be a form of fake news. <laughs> and, okay. and, but, I, but I think there are two dangers, and I think one's obvious and one's overlooked. The obvious one is that if something, we'll use your term, if disinformation is put in, people can think, oh, that's real. And, right. and that's you know, what happened with bots and you know, somebody with an agenda can, can feed falsity into the news mainstream. Mm -hmm. But there's another danger, and the other danger is that we'll start to believe that real stories are false. Mm. We'll start to get cynical 
and start to believe that, well, maybe nothing's true. And the way to combat that, I think, what you were talking about is education. Uh, one of the most uplifting stories that I found in, in researching my book was a, a fifth grade teacher in, uh, here in California named Scott Bedley, one, a teacher of the year, I think, before this happened. But he made up something called the fake news game, where he would, with his fifth graders, uh, he had a whole rubric, and I mean, it's easy, even a fifth grader can do it. And I give you the, the rubric in the book, you know, look for copyright. Uh, does it sound right to you? Uh, has the person written other things? You know, where is it published? They, he had this whole rubric, and the students loved it so much that they refused to go to recess uh, until they, you know, give me another one, Mr. Bedley. They want to play the fake news game. I think that that's really the future for people. I mean, we've been very spoiled in the late 20th century, early 21st century, to expect objectivity from media. Most of human history, we couldn't expect objectivity from media. Kids are now learning these skills to, to be more skeptical to, uh, about what they, what they learn. I, I think that's going to be one, uh, one way that we'll get out of this. So we have to just survive, kind of, until they grow up. I you guess. have to survive until those <laughs> kids so, I mean, grow up. So, so, I, so I, think I, I, I think that there are three types of solutions. And one is the demand side solution, which is what Lee's talking about. And that's the education. How do we get people to be better informed about consuming news? And also, how do we make them want to consume news. Like the average person doesn't really read a newspaper. The average person gets their news maybe on Twitter, maybe on Facebook. Yeah. Um, so you know, how do we get people to want to look for good information? Because if we don't get that, then we can make all the changes we want um, to, to the quality of information, but it won't matter because people won't care. On the supply side, we can think about different ways of sharing and disseminating information. So, you know, one thing that's easy to point to is, you know, the way news is presented to us now, there's a lot more blurring of, of you know, facts and news reporting and opinion and commentary. They're mixed together and it can be difficult to disentangle them. So there could be, you know, an effort to not get rid of opinion or commentary, just do a better job labeling it. Make it clear to readers what they're getting so that when they're reading facts, they're getting facts. And when they're reading opinion, they know it's opinion, even if it's mixed into the same article. Although you, but although the, why would okay, they choosing the facts is a matter of opinion too, though. Choosing which facts you do. But and also, if, if, if most people are, are getting their information not through the, the portal of a, of a, of a publication, um, of, of, a, of a media company or outlet, um, but through social media, that, that undermines exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. Because if, if people are just on the Facebook feed, Getting it, it's it's not and 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 the efforts which are considerable of of institutions like the New York Times to make exactly those kind of distinctions, um, which is something that is is in, it, the 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 work of many editors day in and day out to to signal exactly those things you're talking about, um, the difference between opinion and 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 reporting between. Um, but that distinction data isn't clear on social media, even. No, that's even what I'm high. saying. Right. So so the second thing I was going to say is another way of thinking about packaging information is if people are getting their news through through social media, how do we make sure that that social media is like high quality information, right? So right now, the headlines that you get for any article in any paper are really misleading. You know, you'll click on something because it sounds, they, well, they want you to click on it, so it's edgy. You know, it pulls mm -hmm. you in. It may not have any resemblance to what's actually in the article. So, you know, what do we, what do we want from social media? What do we want our social media space to look like? We have Twitter now, we have Facebook, we have Instagram. Is that what we want? We used to have MySpace. We have a chance to like imagine something new. We're not stuck with what we have now. 
So I think that that's kind of a debate that can happen and that can include policymakers, right? We have a new information space. We don't need to think about how to regulate it, but we can think about how to manage it, how to create a space that captures the good things from social media and or, limits the bad things. Or we can say we're going to use social media for what it was supposed to be and to share pictures of our cats and our, <laughs> and we're gonna use news outlets for news. I mean, if you, you know, I guess that's, we want everything to be so easy and to kind of, you know, flow right into our brain path that's already going a certain direction. And but, but that, I think that's a, uh, that's a false expectation, though. I mean, if you, yeah. one, of the, one of the things, one of the most fascinating pieces of research I did for the, for the book, I, I, I was sort of shocked by this, that the, the telegraph was invented in the 1840s. And there, there was a lot of bias in journalism, not just the yellow journalism, but, but even before, newspapers had a point of view. Mm -hmm. um, but then when the telegraph was invented, they all started to get their facts through the telegraph, and yeah. the, the people who were sending the news through the telegraph, well, they, it couldn't be biased because it was going out to all of these media outlets. So the, that, that's when the, the AP really got mm -hmm. started with, they were gonna just present the facts, and then the media outlets, who were the consumers, were going to slant it left, slant it right, whatever they were going to do with it. But that was really, I discovered, when objectivity in media started to be an expectation. And the New York Times was one of the, the outlets that really started to pick up on Well, you know, but we could try to do the news a, a little more straight, whereas the other ones, the Hearst papers and the others, were, were skewing it. But that, I think that's an interesting example of a... Uh, a a technological advancement mm -hmm. that helped with media bias. And who's to say that there can't be other technological advancements? I mean, uh, Facebook could do more. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I ask this in, in audiences when I give a talk, when's the last time you ever saw porn on Facebook? And the answer is never. And the reason you never see porn on Facebook is because they police for it mm -hmm. very stringently. They could do the same thing for fake yeah, news, yeah. but they don't. Yeah. Well, they could, but it would be an enormous challenge. I mean, I'm not, so well, I'm not saying so they, so, but I don't think that they're going to do it on their own. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they, the amount, the volume of false information that is out there is so yeah. enormous. And I don't see there being incentives in the economic market for Facebook to take yeah. this on on their own. They, that's, you just said there, it right there. There isn't, there isn't right. the case Do they have porn. an economic incentive? And they would also be criticized anytime they tried to do this. But I, 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 I foresee yeah. the day when there will be um, a, a, a technology that helps with this. Because if we don't, we're in big trouble. I mean, I don't know how many of you know about a deep fake technology for audio and video. They've now got voice capture and face capture technology where in real time they can manipulate both speech and movement. Uh, if, I were, if somebody were standing off stage uh, with a, a face capture, they could, and you projected me up on a screen, you could make me make whatever facial movements you wanted me to make. That's the real danger, that okay. it's not just a static problem. <laughs> fake news in the next two or three years is gonna get so bad that you won't even know with videotape evidence, you won't be able to tell. But that's why All having right, a you're technology... You're scaring me now. I think we should wrap it up and start taking questions. I, think, yeah. I mean, 
I, that's a really good scary look in the future, but we are ready to take questions. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ron Schenkman. Uh, I am a journalist. Uh, I have a question for you. You brought up the uh, time periods where there's been a blurring of uh, uh, fact and uh, disinformation. Uh, the 1890s with the Hearst Papers, uh, the 20s and 30s with uh, polemics like uh, Father Coughlin and Walter Winchell, 60s where you had the underground press. I'm seeing something quite different now, and I think that was borne out by the article in the New Yorker magazine last week about the convergence of a news outlet, Fox News, uh, and the White House, which is something that's never happened before. And I wanted to get your take on how that may wind up affecting truth and fake news and di disinformation moving forward. And is, is this a one-off, or is this going to become a regular event now? So I actually am not sure that it's new. Um, it certainly is different than it was, say, in the 80s um, or the 90s or even, you know, 10 years ago. Um, but if you go back to, like, the Revolutionary War era, um, newspapers were run by political parties. There was no objective news, as Lee was saying previously. It was, they were actually, like, pamphlets printed by political parties. That was all the news that we had. So I don't think that this is unprecedented, that we're seeing, um, you know, a link between political uh, partisanship and... Um, and, and news outlets. Um, you know, certainly the, 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 the infusion of partisan rhetoric and partisan ideology into news has accelerated, um, and a lot of that is economic. It's, it becomes more partisan because partisan sells, because partisan makes money. And I think, you know, one thing we haven't really talked about um, tonight is the role that the economics of the media industry play in, in, this, whole, in this whole problem. It incentivizes media outlets to produce, you know, f to produce um, not, not even false information, but biased information that will appeal to their specific set of um, viewers or readers or subscribers, um, while disincentivizing um, journalists to do kind of the hard-hitting investigative pieces um, that we'd really like to see, that, 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 we've, that throughout history have helped to uncover corruption and lies and, and things like that. And so I think that this economic aspect is something that is really driving a lot of the problem and it's something that we kind of, you know, need to take a deep, a deep look at um, in terms of how it perverts the way we get information um, and the way that that information is then funneled into the political sphere. So we talked a little bit about polarization previously. Um, and the actual polarization that exists is probably less bad than the way polarization is presented in the media in terms of like the hatred and the anger towards the, the other party. And so I think that distinction is also important to recognize. But I think it's also important to say that, that it's, 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 not, it's not symmetrical and it's not across the board. I mean, there's a problem of false information. There's also a problem of false balance, um, mm -hmm. which is, which, has been exploited, I think it, it has to be said, more by the right than by the left in the current political um, environment, um, which is exactly to, to sort of, to, to exploit the journalistic habit of weighing two sides. I mean, this is, this is how science denialism is worked for a very long time. False yeah. equivalence. So, yeah. so someone said X and someone said Y, and rather than, you know, Adjudicate the truth of those two statements. You you present them as 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 opposed. I mean, this is they, this is they, something that that journalism that I would say you know legitimate journalism has grappled with precisely because 
the, the opponents of legitimate journalism have figured out a way to game it, in a way, to, 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 to work it and to exploit that habit um, to, 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 to muddy the waters and, 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 and to, to legitimize as truthful um, points of view or bodies of information that aren't truthful. There's a terrific point. article on, on that Columbia Journalism Review. Yeah. Uh, this actually comes off of what you guys were just discussing. When you talk about uh, truth, a lot of times that's carefully researched and that winds up actually costing money by the public. If you're on social media and you want to take a look at, say, something from the New York Times, the LA Times, you're limited to how many articles you can view, where opinion doesn't cost anyone anything. So if you want to share opinion, whether it be left or right or whatever, that's just some YouTube snippet from somebody's website. What are your feelings about that? Like the fact that truth is actually arguably gated behind a paywall. I, I, I think that um, you can buy the subscription. <laughs> buy, buy, buy the subscription, right? Because if you if you if you want to if you want to support invest good investigative, uh, you know, fact based. Uh, conflict interest-free journalism support it. Um, Thank you. Uh, and, but, but even so, I think that there are, there are many available sources uh, that aren't behind a paywall. I, I, don't, I don't see a lot of people in front of their computers, damn, I just, I can't find the facts. It's that they're, they're, they're you can get pushed in a, in a direction and maybe want to get pushed in the in the direction. I, I've really enjoyed um, one question that I get a lot on the road is people ask me what what uh, uh, sources do I listen to. I've really enjoyed starting to listen to the BBC because they have a very different perspective on what's going on in the United States right now than than you get even on NPR or or other programs. So I mean, part of it's to get a, a diversity, but the other is there. I, I have I'm very hard on the media in my book. But I have great respect for journalistic values, uh, unbiased con uh, disclosure of conflict of interest. Uh, uh, good, good journalistic practices are really important. And, and, and endangered. I mean, the thing yes. is that, yeah. that you know, the, 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 those paywalls and subscription fees um, have, have saved a lot of um, businesses, and, and have, you know, including, including you know, who pays my salary. Um, but but also at the same time, you know, the number of local papers that have either gone out of business and disappeared entirely, or have shrunk down to you know a skeleton staff, or or have been bought by hedge fund and private equity firms to be just basically stri asset stripped. Um, that's a thing that is is is. Um, very scary, um, and that you know, in in Los Angeles, which 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 now has a a, a newly robust um, daily newspaper, and in New York and in Washington, we don't notice as much. But but throughout the country, um, the 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 ability to do that kind of investigation, to tell those kinds of stories, to 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 reveal the truths that need to be truth is is that need to be revealed is. Um, is really imperiled, and in some places has gone away, mm -hmm. and 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 that is the thing um, is is one of the the less reported and less discussed, um, but should be very very troubling um, developments, and it's hard to know what to do about that, you know, the, because because the, the the economic model that that mm -hmm. supported those those local institutions. Um, 
has collapsed um, and is gone. And, and I mean, the BBC has, has you know, is, is paid for by the tax that everyone in, yeah. in Britain pays for, their, on, for having a television. Yeah. It's unlikely that the American <laughs> public would agree to such a tax. So I would just like to say I do not disagree with either of my co-panelists, but there are sources of really good information that's free. So my book is not for sale today because it's free. You can download it on the website, at the RAND website, <laughs> along with thousands of other RAND reports filled with data and information. So that is not a replacement of newspapers at all, but it is a supplement and it is free. So that is yeah. a place if you're ever looking for the answer to a question, there is a RAND report on everything. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Patrick Langrell. I'm, I'm just wondering if it's possible to have an account of truth that brings together insights from these different domains or whether we're stuck with field-specific definitions. And I ask that because I think there's a tendency sometimes for people from different domains to reduce truth to insights in that domain. So politicians and journalists might refer to truth as facts and uh, scientists might refer to empirical observations, historians, accurate rendition of past events. And whilst many of us might feel comfortable referring to elements of this as truth from different domains, we're often more uneasy or a little bit more skeptical about referring to truths from other domains like aesthetics and arts or morality and ethics or spirituality and religion. So what I'm wondering is, is it, is it possible to develop an account of truth that can combine the insights from these different domains together and hold them without being mm -hmm. full of contradictions or tensions? Or do we have to essentially reduce our understanding of truth and qualify it to one of these specific fields? It's easy for a philosopher to get into trouble talking about truth because the philosophers will never be satisfied with my answer. So they can just stop watching right now. Um, philosophers have different theories of truth. They disagree about the coherence or correspondence or pragmatic or semantic theories. Um, and I think that most philosophers recognize that there can be different kinds of truths, uh, not every truth is a scientific truth or an empirical truth. It's a very tricky thing to have a theory that covers all of them. But here's the thing, and I faced this moment in, in writing my book because I'm a philosopher and I'm, uh, I'm writing a book called Post-Truth. At some point I have to say, what do I mean by truth? And I, uh, I went way back to Aristotle and, who said... Uh, to say of that which is that it is and that which is not that it is not. Well, that's cheating in a way, I suppose. But the thing <laughs> is, I don't think you actually have to define such a global concept of truth that encompasses all of that to know that it's in danger, to care about it. And I made the case in my book that philosophers are very contentious with one another and you know, get angry and argue with one another about truth theories of truth, people say, how can you stick up for the idea of objective, objective truth? And, and I know all these debates, and they've, they've, they've got a point, and we can debate them. But philosophers care about truth, and I think that that's one point that I wanted to make in my book and in an earlier book called Respecting Truth, that you, in order to really get to the point where you're trying to have a, a theory of truth, you have to care about it as a concept. And, and I go back to the idea that uh, in, in philosophy, there's a distinction between uh, metaphysics and epistemology, uh, between questions about how things are and questions about how we know how things are. And I'm a very strong believer in the idea that there is a reality out there, that, that there is a way that things are. Now, how do we know it? How do we interpret it? That goes back to Socrates, back to Plato. You know, how, how can you just see the shadows in the cave? Do you know things as they really are? That, that can be as difficult as you want to make it. 
that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as reality, which for me means that I'm going to say I believe in the concept of truth. People can quibble with that, or you know, my philosophical colleagues can come after me about that, but, but I, I defend the concept of truth because I think we have to find a way to show that human knowledge, if we're trying to understand reality as it exists and not just make up things, it's, it's really important that we think about that. And I think that in their own crooked way, all of these theories of truth are trying to do that. I'm not sure I answered that, but you can always take a course in epistemology. <laughs> My name is Mark Jaffe. I'm wondering if truth as a concept in our society is becoming culturally less relevant. That as a culture, we are finding less importance with the concept of truth and more importance with the concept of our own agenda, such that truth can be utilized when it advances our agenda and not utilized when it doesn't, and society is okay with that. Okay. Me, me again, can I say that, a, a that, that word? That seems like your question. Okay, so I, I wanna, I think that can happen, but I think that there's a danger if that happens, and, and, I, and I, I brought this out just uh, in case, quotation from uh, the great Holocaust historian Hannah Arendt. She said this, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, true and false, no longer exist. I, I think that post-truth is a political subordination of reality. It's uh, people, it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not lying to convince you that something is true, it's lying in your face, even though you can refute it, to show you who's boss, to dominate you. That's not my idea, Masha Gessen, Jason Stanley, others have said it. So I think when people ask, how can, we, how can certain political figures get away with lying so much when there's videotape evidence, I think it's because the point of post-truth, I think post-truth is a political tactic. It's not, it's not meant to persuade or to convince because that, even that's a type of respect. You at least respect some, if you're lying to somebody, you might think that that's not respect, but at least you care about whether they change their mind to your point of view. But if you're dominating their reality, if you're saying to them, Jason Stanley says this about propaganda, propaganda isn't meant to convince you. It, it's, it's meant to make you feel helpless. It's meant so that they can lie to your face and say there's nothing you can do about it because I own you. That's, and that's what Hannah Arendt's talking about. When we give up on the concept of facts and truth, uh, I think we're headed for uh, political domination, we, which is why I'm so concerned about this. It also has real practical consequences. We have examples of what happens when we make policies that aren't based on facts and evidence. So look at the Great Depression. One of the reasons why the Great Depression was so bad and so long was because in the early 30s, policymakers made decisions without looking and consulting with macroeconomic data. And that's why in the 30s, you have the rise of real evidence-based policymaking with all three-letter agencies collecting data on things like GMP, G GDP and unemployment and things like that. So we have examples, and that's just one. We could point to many other examples of cases where policymakers have made decisions without looking at evidence, either intentionally ignoring it or uh, choosing to believe, uh, making policy based on ideology and not, and not facts and evidence. And so that's the outcome, you know, that's the outcome that I think about, is if we keep going down this path and we just make policies based on, you know, what's politically viable or what's politically popular without looking at the facts, we're going to end up with, your next, your, the next one of these is on what 
is America ready for the next recession? If we make mm -hmm. economic policy not based on fact, it's going to happen a lot sooner than any of us would like. All right, well, before we close tonight, I'd like to thank the Getty for making uh, tonight possible and for co-presenting tonight's program. Also, thank you all of you for coming tonight. Please stick around for the reception, continue the conversation, and finally, a round of applause for our panelists tonight. Big round. Thank you. Thank you.